Who are we? And who are we becoming? Two questions that are certainly worth asking during times like these. Times where we must remember in our hearts and almost be burdened in our minds that we are today. And in every right of that truth, we must also remember that we are the future. You see, we exist in this present moment, breathing, hearts beating, some by the form of assistance and others by this cyclical, ethereal nature, one that is almost all too divine to explain. We are alive. And in this mind of mine and in the minds of many others, we are here. Yet we also exist somewhere else. We dream of tomorrow while we dance within today. Tackling the tiny tasks that we allot to ourselves. Praying and believing that the little things we're working on will continue to compound in interest and add to the understanding of our overall identity. Until someday, one day, we ultimately embody the image of who we know we can become. But the human identity is this beautiful amalgamation of moods, moments, minutes, hours, months, and years. This distinguishing sum of characteristics that undoubtedly, unequivocally, makes you, you. Your fingerprints, the film within your eyes, the color of your skin, the way that your soul is wired. Whether it is weary or wandering, you are you. Not by mistake, but by divine mandate. And with the few moments that you get to experience the limitless wonder that this life has to offer, the heart and the mind must work together, acting as the governor for the time that you spend here. The internal compass of compassion, confidence, or creativity will be the very thing that walks you into the time that is tomorrow, extracting even the finest parts of you that lie beneath the surface of today. Cold hearts long for warmth. Hungry souls seek spiritual nourishment. And humanity, well, humanity longs to be liberated. What is up, family? My name is Nigel, and today we get to tackle the topic of liberation. We're going to discuss what it means, how we embody it, and interestingly enough, how we can exist in today while somehow also living within the future. We'll be exploring the concept of the yet but not yet. And we will also look closely at how who we are and what we do ties directly into where we stand within. I want to say thank you because you could be anywhere else doing anything else, but you've chosen to come and sit at the table, humanity's table, where healing happens through the art 
of understanding. In September 2014, I was attending a preached retreat in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The director that year was a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Larry Gillick, and he just so happens to be blind. I mention his blindness only to make a broader point that there are, it seems, some things that can only be seen by the blind. Father Gillick possesses the gift of illumination to a degree that I have never experienced before. He talks about creation like someone who wakes up every morning staring at the sunrise and goes to bed every night watching the sunset. His sense of hearing is also seemingly more disciplined than most. Maybe because he is blind, or maybe because he has practiced the discipline of silence for so many years that he has learned how to listen. He once commented during a talk, Today I found myself smiling while listening to a goose sing. Listening to a goose sing is such a beautiful sound if you're a goose. Because a goose doesn't sound the same as an oriole or a robin. But that's the beauty of it. Because beauty is distinguished by its peculiarity. This is an excerpt from Cultivate Creativity Unlocked. It was written by Jason Upton and it's called Even God Grows. The recipe for giving into the gift of growth. I definitely highly recommend that you check it out. It's a wonderful magazine written and created by some incredible people. It has awesome visuals. And um, yeah, I mean, it has that incredible bit right there by Jason Upton where he was talking about Father Larry Gillick and the distinguishing characteristics between a goose, a robin, and an oriole. And it all boiled down to this idea of peculiarity. And peculiarity is a wonderful word, right? It can be a little hard to say. You get hung up on it sometimes. But realistically, peculiarity by definition is simply defined as an odd or unusual feature or habit. You see, we all have these these little isms, if you will, these idiosyncratic ways that we walk about our lives. And this may be the first time that you're tuning in and I may be an unfamiliar voice in your life or your sphere and it's also our first introductory episode, so I find it super appropriate to open up just a little bit about myself and share some of my very own isms, if you don't mind at all. And if you do mind, <laughs> I hope you'll just be here with me for a moment. You see, one of my isms is that I hum a particular melody when I'm happy, literally for no good reason at all. It goes a little bit like this. Mmm. Don't be stealing it, okay? That's the hum. Now, if you want to hear me hit those notes, okay, it sounds like this. Whoa. Sometimes I be singing, sometimes I don't. You get you get the vibes. That's one of my isms. And then another one of my isms or my idiosyncratic manners, if you will, my little eclectic vibes about myself. I like to cut my number one chicken sandwiches from Chick-fil-A into four small equal pieces. And I like to pour tiny bits of spicy sriracha sauce on top with just a touch of black pepper. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, wow, this dude is super weird. And that's fine because I am weird. Like, we're all weird in our own little ways. But these are exclusive elements that help make up these minute moments of my own life. And now I know they sound a little strange, but in reality, they are only really strange to you. Not to me. They're the little things that I do because they are an extension of who I am. And you have them, too. You see, we all have these peculiarities, 
these outlying unorthodox patterns that we practice for literally no reason at all outside of the fact that it's just what we do and we simply like doing it. But for the amount of peculiarities that we all have as individuals, we also share a massive amount of commonality collectively. Commonalities that aid into our own individualism, yet ones that connect us collectively. One of my favorite writers wrote a poem once it was titled Human Family, and her name is Maya Angelou. And if you wouldn't mind, I would love to read it to you. I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious and some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profoundity and others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight. Brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who are really all the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts while laying side by side. We love and lose in China, we weep on England moors, and laugh and moan in Guinea, and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland, we are born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, but in major, we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. I said we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Yes, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. You see, you may indeed be a peculiar person, housing a subset of isms and idiosyncratic manners, yet, in your own individualism, you might not realize that you are actually partaking in the collective story being written every day by humanity. Because, in the same way that Maya Angelou said it, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. And you may be listening to this right now thinking to yourself, well, what makes us so alike then? And I would subscribe this subjective truth that our humanity is the very thing that binds us. It gives us a sense of connectedness collectively, and it also bears a sense of brokenness individually. Not just in the ways that we express, but also in the ways that we process. You see, for all those isms that we act out, these natural ones that don't affect or impact someone in any particular way, aside from us, there seems to also be a flip side to that. Somewhat of a dark side, if you will. We all know and can acknowledge that life comes with its fair share of undulating experiences, and it's ultimately up to us to identify exactly what they are. You see, we wrestle with these repetitive actions, ones that we like, ones that we love, and ones ultimately that we loathe. And every action influences and impacts our thinking, our feeling, and ultimately our acting. And psychologists will refer to this practice as cognitive dissonance. And I know that those are big words, but realistically, cognitive dissonance refers to the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. 
And maybe you are not a big psychology fan. That's fine. Maybe you're coming from the spiritual sect and you're a Christian and you're familiar with the world-renowned, well-respected man known as the Apostle Paul. And when he was writing the book of Romans in chapter 7, he said this, and I think we can all relate to this. He said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But as I just said, we wrestle with these repetitive actions, ones that we like, ones that we love, and ones that we loathe. You see, we speak no peace into the positivity, right? But we can hark and hang on to these negatives. Existing in the tension of the two feels a lot like double jeopardy. And this sense of prosecuting ourselves over and over again for the same offense or offenses, it happens all too often. And if what we do is an extension, in a sense, of who we are, then we ought to understand how to deal in these ideas with diligence. So in our time together today, I want to closely examine two trains of thought. Two trains of thought that extend an invitation into this idea and action of liberation as it pertains to our overall identity, as well as the work that acts as an extension of who we are. So, if you don't mind, let's begin with the tension of identity. I wear two faces sometimes. That doesn't mean that I fake with one and keep it real with the other. I've simply found some things within myself that I'd much rather keep covered. I change my voice on the phone to make you picture me different. As image meets inflection, things can shift in an instant. I dress how I do because I've come to respect how I wish to be viewed. Social standards have left my mind a bit battered and bruised. It's an internal war, one quite hard to explain. Two beasts running wild that don't wish to be tamed. There is one who is proper, the other hails from the projects. One bows down to women and the other views them as objects. One cherishes money, the other throws it away. One is set and celibate, the other seeks to get laid. One prays for world peace, the other looks for resistance. One loves to be lazy, the other preaches persistence. They are the unlucky married couple that fell right out of love, but they're still hooked to each other, like they're addicted to drugs. As they fight with each other, they pull and they tug. One is looking for answers, the other's looking for love. If they would just work together, my God, the power they would hold. But one sought out salvation, and the other's soul has been sold. You see, I wrote this poem in 2017. It's titled Double Jeopardy. And as you could tell, there's a very clear contrast and tension between who I was in that current moment and who I was aspiring to be. I had just graduated from my undergraduate program at Marshall University in West Virginia. That's right. Go herd for all my herd listeners out there. And I took one of the only job offers that I had on the table as I was feeling the immediate pressure to perform and use that glorified degree as soon as possible. The job that I took was an account executive position with a sales company based right outside of D.C. in a little town called Manassas, Virginia. With almost no time in between graduation and my job orientation, I packed literally everything that I owned into my Ford Focus, and I drove up to a place called Ranson, West Virginia. And I would live there for about three months, commuting back and forth literally an hour and a half each way, sometimes even more, from the eastern panhandle of West Virginia to sometimes right in the heart of Washington, D.C. 
But this time for me, in this new place, with these new people, with this new role, it was very crushing and very pressing. And there was little to no liberation in sight. And it upset me because I literally busted my ass for four years to obtain another proud piece of paper, thinking that it would somehow lead to liberation. Now, when you think about liberation, you often think about freedom. But I want to point out that there is indeed a big difference between liberation and freedom. The word liberation is a verb. It's what you do. It is the act of being set free. While freedom, on the other hand, is a noun. It's used to identify a person, a place, or a thing, and the word freedom in itself simply alludes to the state of being free. To make it make sense, I had the freedom to up and leave my college town and move to work in D.C., but the job that I was working didn't bring about any sense of the very liberation that I was looking for. In the vein of work, one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell, puts it quite like this. He says, and I quote, those three things, autonomy, complexity, and a connection between effort and reward are, most people will agree, the three qualities that work has to have if it is to be satisfying. But let me tell y'all, this work that I was doing was not satisfying. In fact, if I can find another word to describe it, I would say that it was much closer to excruciating. And it felt that way for a flood of reasons. I was fresh out of college. I was coming from an environment where I was known and loved across not only the college campus, but the city at large. And I was thrown into a place where I was very unknown, unappreciated, and undervalued. And this vision that I had in my mind had been developing during high school, and I had been dreaming about it during undergrad. And it was not at all aligning with my current reality. And this pushed me into a place of depression that could not be fulfilled by any amount of material. So you could imagine that what felt like peak season for me for four years of my collegiate freedom left me crashing down and crumbling in my newfound reality. But I had hope. I was in a place that my mentor, Dr. Uyi, calls yet, but not yet. This idea of the yet, but not yet. I was dreaming of tomorrow while I was dancing in today. And when you know what you want, when you know who you are, and when you know exactly what you aspire to achieve, living in an unaligned reality can almost feel like a form of oppression. you got to hear me when I say this, but it can even feel like a form of slavery, if you will. Your ideas and opinions and emotions can lead you to locking yourself in a cage and shackling yourself into submission. Now, I know this sounds extreme, but it's the reality for many people, not only in the Western Hemisphere, but literally all around the world. And in the vein of slavery, this idea, and in the light of Black History Month being just a few days ago, as I was recording this and I was writing this, I found myself diving deep into one of my favorite reads yet again, extracting the beauty from the brokenness of humanity in American history as we know it. If it's okay, I'd like to read to you uh, an excerpt from one of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, in his book called A Man Without Country. And it goes like this. No matter how corrupt, greedy, and heartless our government or corporations, our media, and our religious and charitable institutions may become, the music will still be wonderful. And if I should ever die, God forbid, let this be my epitaph. 
The only proof that he needed for the existence of God was music. And to me, this is utterly hilarious because Kurt Vonnegut was a well-known humanist and atheist, and he did not believe in God at all. So he's trying to illustrate the impact that music has had on his life. Back to music. It practically makes everybody fonder of life than he or she would be without it. Even military bands. Although I am a pacifist, always cheer me up. And I really like Strauss, and I really like Mozart and all that, but the priceless gift that African Americans gave the whole world while they were still in slavery was a gift so great that it is now almost the only reason that many foreigners still like us even a little bit. He was writing this to 1960s and 1970s America. That specific remedy for the worldwide epidemic of depression is a gift called the blues. All pop music today, jazz, swing, bebop, Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the Stones, rock and roll, hip hop, rap, and on and on is derived from the blues. And the wonderful writer, Albert Murray, who is a jazz historian and a friend of mine among other things, told me that during the era of slavery in this country, an atrocity from which we can never fully recover, the suicide rate per capita among slave owners was actually much higher than the suicide rate among slaves. I want to sit right there and let you sit with that for a second. He goes on to say that Murray says he thinks that this was because the slaves had a way of dealing with depression, which their white slave owners did not. They could shoo away old man's suicide by playing and singing the blues. He says something else which also sounds right to me. He says that the blues can't drive depression clear out of a house, but it can drive depression into the corners of any room of which the blues are being played. Woo! That's fire right there. That is incredible American literature, something that we often look over and miss. It's information that's not taught to you in schools. It's information that you're not given. It's information that you have to seek out, but it is a part of American history. Not just the blues, but also this idea of suicide that happened at a higher rate per capita for white slave owners versus the people who were actually enslaved. Now, the blues, so beautiful, they were birthed out of a place of oppression. But not just oppression. They were also birthed out of a place of identity, this embodying or having a true understanding of who you are. Now, the history books, the media, and most modern day humanity refers to this group of people as quote unquote slaves. And it makes it very easy to often forget that these slaves were actually individuals, that they too, despite their current conditions, helped make up humanity at large. And historically, slaves received various forms of discipline to deal with the desired attitude adjustments or to have examples issued to individuals for the sake of reminding other slaves to, quote unquote, stay in line. And the words often issued to the slaves who were being disciplined were words like restless, insubordinate, incorrigible, rebellious, the list goes on and on, but I believe what needs to be most noted is that the creation of one of the greatest gifts to humanity, what we know and acknowledge as the blues, was in fact a very result of rebellion. Not only an act of rebellion, but an act of redemption, redeeming or reclaiming, if you will, the value of expression that came from an understanding of internal identity, despite their enslavement. 
in the moments where they had a lifestyle forced upon them that did not include having freedom, it should be noted that their spirits still longed for liberation. And while none of us can imagine or relate to the emotional trauma that these enslaved individuals experienced, or imagine or relate to what it feels like to having your identity completely stolen and stripped away for decades and centuries on end, or identify with the utter and extreme forms of oppression that were issued to them back then, I will submit to you that we can all relate to being overwhelmed by emotion due to extenuating circumstances surrounding our lives. And we can all relate to having unaligned realities that divide us from our dreams. And we can all relate to an organization, a place, or a person oppressing us enough to long for liberation. Many of us can relate to having the freedom to do, but lacking the liberation that we so desperately desire. And as I close our time together here today, I want to invite you into a few questions to consider. The first question, what area of your life are you longing for liberation in? Liberation is needed when an area of your life is oppressed or when an area of your identity is oppressed. And many of us have been gifted with the freedom to live in liberation. So I will submit to you again, Is it a personal struggle that needs to be worked out in private? Is it a part of your identity that feels broken to you that needs liberation because it's being oppressed by people, places, or things? Is it your work? Is it the job that you have? Is it giving you life? Or is it gifting you with grief? So that's question number one. Question number two is, have you made your work your worth? In other words, are you allowing what you do to determine who you are? And if you are doing that, it should be noted that what you do is nothing more than an extension who you are. What you do is not who you are in your entirety. But this is certainly a question worth asking. Have you made your work your worth? And the last question is this. Are you currently attempting to understand the fullness of your identity? If you exist within humanity, you have such a particular offering that only you can give to the world. And I make this question the last one because it's the most important question to ask. And here's why. Society is continually trying to distract, diminish, and ultimately decide for you who you are. So the question is, are you intentionally attempting daily to fight back against the labels and life that the world is consistently suggesting that you subscribe to? I know these questions are deep, but I heard recently that hard work is hard work. And if we're not doing it, that often means that someone else, often society, is doing that work for us, often resulting in an inauthentic reality. We're closing out our time today, and I honestly can't believe that we're doing it because we're officially at the end of our first episode ever. The first episode of hopefully many here in this first season and seasons to come. And I pray that if you've taken nothing else away from this, I pray that you're encouraged by whatever emotions were evoked in our time together today. And furthermore, that you're inspired to take action. So thank you for spending your invaluable time here at the table, Humanity's Table where healing happens through the art of understanding. Go in peace.